all hear me? Okay. Well, good morning. As uh, Wes has said, I am Pastor Cody Almanzar. I pastor Free Baptist Church in Limerick, Maine, and have for a little over a year now. <clears throat> and um, I was very thankful and honored when Wes asked me to come here this Sunday. And I've seen less than half of you a couple times now, and spoken to less than half of you, uh, but it's a lot better to see the other half of you, because I was dealing with men before. So uh, it's good to see everybody here together. Yes, my wife and I have nine children, um, seven girls and two boys, and one son is the second in line, and one son is the last in line. Maybe not the last, he's the youngest right now. Um, so pray for them in different ways. Hey, but pray for them. Pray for my oldest son, because he's not the favorite brother anymore. Pray for the youngest one, that he learns to walk better, because he never gets put down. All right, so they, they hold him all the time, his sisters do. But um, I wish they all could have been here with you today. Um, but they are at our church back home, and worshiping there. And our church and in Limerick has been praying for you all um, for months now. Um, ever since I think October when I went down there to, to the men's retreat and um, we keep you all in our prayers and are very thankful to hear the good reports and see everybody here and the work that God is doing here in this church um, just gets us excited. And so um, one thing, I, if, you, if you take your Bibles please and turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and one thing I want to say is um, we were challenged yesterday in, in, a, in a way um, to sing Amazing Grace and mean it. And uh, we did this morning. And I was, I was almost brought to tears. I had to stop myself because I said, I've got to get up there and preach. I've got to get up there and preach. I don't want to start the sermon in tears. Uh, maybe end it in tears. Um, but we are ready now to receive God's word. And I hope that your hearts were lifted up through the prayers and the offerings and the reading of God's word and especially through the singing and um, as we open up this passage here to a very important passage in Hebrews, uh, I hope that God is gracious and merciful and uh, aids us in our understanding. So Hebrews 1, we're going to be focusing on verse 8, but we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 9 because it's hard when you uh, speak somewhere. You don't just want to jump into the middle of a text. It's hard to do that. I, I find topical preaching more difficult than expository preaching, which is what I like to do. Now, this is still expository, even though we're jumping in the middle, but I want to get the context right so we understand what's happening. Hebrews is a wonderful book, and um, so we're going to start there. Hebrews 1, 1, and then we're going to find, <clears throat> uh, we're going to find ourselves in verse 8. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, to be in your house this morning. And as we see, there are different churches, Lord, but one body. And so I ask, just like my church back home, that we here in Litchfield, 
love and cherish the Word of God. As it's read and spoken, Lord, let it not be something that just is routine, but let us see that we are hearing from the mouth of God. How can our hearts not be changed, Lord? And to see the graciousness of your Son, the excellency of Christ, Oh God, how I wish that I were more eloquent. But even then I couldn't speak of the beauty. Let your spirit be active among us today, convicting us of our sin. Or showing us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Giving us conviction hope. Lord, be with me as I speak and preach. I'm so weak, but you're strong. And show yourself strong this morning. Let us all walk away saying, what a great God we serve. And if there's somebody here, Lord, who is not a believer, I ask that you break their heart. Give them a heart of flesh that we might rejoice. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here I said I wasn't going to start my sermon in tears. I'm going to preach this sermon from the book of Hebrews today and it was something when Wes had asked me to I'm preaching through the Gospel of John as well at my church, and we're in chapter 4. Um, and so he said he was in John, and so I didn't want to bring anything from those first four chapters that I've preached. Um, and I was looking through, and I remembered these sermons from the book of Hebrews that I had done, and uh, this was a couple of years ago. And um, I love this passage dearly. It's become one of my favorites in all of Scripture, Hebrews 1.8. And it's my prayer that God uses this to strike our hearts with conviction, with sincerity, being awestruck by God's holiness. And it's the, the temptation is there and the, the danger is always there to jump into uh, a part of the Bible that you're not currently studying. I don't know if some of you may be studying Hebrews, some of you might not be at this moment. But it's important that we catch up in our context. This is why I read the first Uh, seven verses before verse eight. So we kind of get a glimpse here. So we can't just uh, make up any belief about a passage that's not there. That's the temptation. I was telling Rich um, about a a man that I was dealing with one time at my church in in Colorado when I was pastoring there. And uh, he came and he said, hey, my church, um, we're we're having to leave our building. And uh, we want to uh, rent your building to use, uh, of course, after your services, and, and uh, our church was very much uh, not wealthy, and so, you know, we were listening to these things, and I said, okay, well, let me take down your, your number, and, and uh, he told me, he said, um, you know, he said, you believe that Jesus is God, right? And I said, well, yeah, and he said, yeah, because Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I said, well, no, don't believe that. I said, those are three distinct persons in the triune Godhead. And, and he said, well, no, Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, no, he's not. And you need to read your Bible. And we need to see what, what really the Bible says about God. And, and he said, well, we do read our Bibles. And the conversation went on. And in a little bit, he told me, he said, you know, we were trying to pray the Holy Spirit into this person today. And he was, it was real close, boy. And he said, we were excited. It was real close. And I had to look at the guy. And I said, you know we can't let you use our building. And I said, we need the money, but we can't let you use it because we don't believe the same things that you believe and what you're saying is false. And 
I don't want what you're doing going on inside of here. Now, why am I saying this? Because a guy could come across this passage and say, well, look here, uh, uh, God calls Jesus God, and, and therefore Jesus is God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's not what's being taught here. You can't just make up what you believe about a passage and then say it's true. Our desire is not to preach ourselves into the text or anything else, but God's Word, as He has breathed it out. So from verses 1 through 6, we find the author of Hebrews exalting Christ. I mean, the words that we read at the beginning of Hebrews uh, 1, verses 1 through 7, 8, and 9, how does this not bring your heart to doxology when you read this? He's showing his excellence and supremacy. You see, the the Hebrews were in a lot of trouble. At some point, they had uh, professed this faith in Christ, and now they are going back to the old Levitical system, or trying to. They're trying to forsake Christ and go back. And the author of Hebrews, you see it in in chapters 4, 5, and beyond, he's really saying, don't go back. Christ is so much better than anything that you worshipped in that dead religion. Stay with him. Don't forsake Christ. Don't forsake Christ. Don't forsake Christ. Look at how much better he is. They were into angel worship. He said, no, Christ is better than the angels. That's why you read that there. It was a call upon hearing about the excellencies of Christ. Christ, that angels are called to fall down before Jesus in worship. The idea was presented to us once again of the Hebrews even favoring the angels above Jesus at times. And how this call for them to worship must have been mind-blowing. The application could be made that because the Hebrews would have seen that they should follow and lead, uh, the, leave the angels and, and worship Jesus. The angels are, are, are wonderful, right? They're wonderful, but they're not Christ. The rightful place of Christ is to be worshipped by us. The angels worship him. Why would we not? And then you, you get down into verse 7, and there's this divine ranking here. Look at verse 7, if you will. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, you can go to the Old Testament multiple times and draw from the text the true and right meaning of the passages that we were looking at there. But also... And it's important for our context this morning. We need to realize that at the beginning of verse 7, it specifically tells us that it is God who says this about the angels, right? Look at that. Of the angels, He says. God says. Why would that be important? Because at the beginning of verse 8, we can see it again. But of the Son, He says. And so we know that the next thing to come in our Bibles are declarations of God. All of Scripture truly is God-breathed. But what we have before us is not only just the, the, this is a, a divine ranking of God Himself. Right, of God Himself. This is a disclosure of the very nature of God. So the historic Christian creeds on the idea of the Trinity... And that it is central and seminal that we are Trinitarian believers. Very God of very God is the title of my message today. This is a line taken from an old creed. The Trinity, there is one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've, I've gone so far as to say, and I, and I stand by it, and you probably saw it at the beginning of uh, the Gospel of John. It's the same way there, but in Hebrews, if you don't interpret the book of Hebrews through a Trinitarian view, meaning we should always be looking for the Trinity, the distinctiveness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout the book and how they work in perfect harmony, that you're not going to understand it correctly. You'll be confused. Like the guy who came to my church who said, Jesus is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
Trinitarian harmony and how they work together in unison. Now, as we have been talking about this, the idea of the Trinity, and, and I'm saying we got to read the Trinity and, and see the Trinity in Scripture, you might have said to yourself, or maybe you've said this before because you heard the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and we say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and we don't see it there, and I don't see it. I, I see the mention of the Father and Son, but they seem different in ranking even. They, they, how can the Son be of the same substance as the Father of the Father? These are good questions, and they need answers, and there are answers. We should not believe something just because I say it, though. Let me, let me get that out. Don't believe something just because Cody says it. We believe something because God's Word says it. And thankfully, we're coming to one of the clearest Trinitarian passages in all of Scripture as far as showing that the Father and Son are of the same substance. And so with all of that in mind, where we've already looked at in, in, the, in the first seven verses to where we're going now, let's look at this passage. Look at here. I want you to see at the very beginning of verse 8, he says, But of the Son, he says, your throne. Now, one of the more subtle themes you run across in Hebrews is the idea of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Now, as you've read through Hebrews, I'm assuming... Everybody here has read through Hebrews or, or have heard about Hebrews. Maybe some of you have picked up on that theme. Uh, but it was something that I missed up in, in the first seven verses until, until verse 8 when I was studying this out for sermon preparation. In Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 10, we have the threefold office of Christ explained in more detail. But we also see the groundwork for what has come to laid out for us in the first Eight verses of this book. Look at verses 1 and 2 here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now we see that Jesus is parallel with the Old Testament paralleled with the Old Testament prophets. You get that in Deuteronomy 18 as well. The prophet will arise from among you, one like Moses, right? That's showing you Christ. This is not by accident that this is here. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He is a prophet who is prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. He's shown to be a prophet again. And then look at verse 3. He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here you see Jesus and the office of priest making atonement for sin. For your edification and understanding of the book of Hebrews, knowing the book of Leviticus or being familiar with it, with the Old Testament types, this would come in handy. So if you're going to study Hebrews, read through Leviticus at the same time, and you'll, you'll start to see it's, it's a very helpful thing. But here it is in real time, seeing as Old Testament priests would atone for sin on behalf of their people, here we have the same in Christ. He made purification for sins. Isn't this amazing? In the Old Testament, they would have to go yearly and sacrifice for sin. And they'd have to go back the next year and do it again and, and do it again and do it again. And Christ does it once for all. That's amazing to me. Then we also have in verse 3 and even more so in verse 8, Jesus as King, your throne, O God, it says. And that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. I want you to see, uh, turn to Psalm 45, if you will. Psalm 45.
verses 6 and 7, especially our passage in Hebrews 1.8, is a quotation from Psalm 45. So if you look at that, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So you can see the quotation, right, from Hebrews 1, Psalm 45. What's interesting here, though, is this psalm, Psalm 45, the entire psalm, is about King Solomon's marriage. But there are so many things in that psalm that are too lofty for it to only be applied to him. Things that are too high, too exalted, even over King Solomon. You see, in our day, we have a lot of people claiming that they are the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. There's a group I just read about. I don't remember where they're from, but a guy leads them and he says, I have come back. I'm Jesus Christ. And people are following him. He's drawing them away. Things are too lofty for King Solomon. And yet this guy thinks he's qualified. Things that could only be applied to Christ. We also see there that we don't have time to go into today the idea of how This chapter corresponds to that of other chapters talking about the marriage of of Christ and His church in Psalm 45 and these other places. And it definitely alludes to it throughout. But what we need to see here is how the writer of Hebrews is using this passage. He uses Psalm 45 to make Christ known. See, when we look at the Scriptures, we should see the scope, the sum, the central, everything about the Scriptures points to Christ. It's all about Him. We're going to see that here in a little bit. It's all about Him. Isn't that the way it should be? Shouldn't we use the Scriptures to show Christ? If someone were to ask you, just in a conversation, what is the central point of Scripture? What would your answer be? What is the scope? What's the point of it? I can't get into it. All these big words and these these things that don't make sense. I tried to read Genesis and the stories were weird. And then I turned to the book of Numbers and it was all about numbers. I don't know what's going on there. And I went to Revelation and it was weird. It was almost like a fantasy movie. And they're saying, so what is the point? I can't get into it. What would you tell them? I'm afraid that many professing Christians in our day would answer that question something like this. The Bible's main point is to tell me about the plan that God has for my life. Does that sound familiar to anybody? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Or they'd say, the Bible is to show you your purpose in life. You must live a life of purpose, and the Bible will show you your purpose. Think about this for a moment. The Bible's main point is to tell me about God's wonderful plan for my life. How boring of a book would that be? Probably pretty boring. I'm not saying anyone in here holds to that view, and I hope not. But it is a, a, a position of many people in the American church. The, ones, the guys you turn on the TV and, and they're preaching on the TV and you see them, the ones who are broadcast all over the world, not just in America, but all over the world, they're the ones telling you this. And the people who don't know any better say, wow, that's what the Bible's about. Okay. So we pick and we choose what verses to read, something that feels like it's going to build me up. Maybe some would answer and say, well, Paul tells Timothy that from childhood he has been acquainted with scriptures that are able to make one wise for salvation. 
So that must mean that the Scripture's central focus is about salvation. And it's partly true, right? That's partly true. Jesus refers to himself as the salvation in John chapter 4. Salvation is to be found in the Word of God. But what does Jesus say the Bible's about? Turn to John chapter 5, if you will. John chapter 5. In verse 39. John chapter 5 and verse 39. 39 and 40. You search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about your wonderful plan for your life. Is that what that says? It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says the scriptures about who? Him. Turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. And verse 27. This is a familiar passage, I'm sure, to everyone. The road to Emmaus. 2427. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses and the prophets. You see, we, we create this false dichotomy in our minds that the Old Testament was about God, the Father, and the New Testament is about Jesus. Starting with Moses and the prophets, Old Testament, all things concerning himself, the Bible is about him. The Bible is about Christ. This does not deny that there are many other things in Scripture, right, that we can draw from and take and we can apply principles. How to treat your wife, that's one of them, right? And, and wives, how to be submissive to your husband, that's another one. How to raise your children, these things, these things that can impact us in our day-to-day -day life. But let us never forget the Scriptures are about Him. Don't read yourself into the text. Don't read yourself into the text. Don't read the story of David and Goliath and say, I'm David. Don't do that. We've already said that salvation is, the, is in the Bible. But there are so many things. Morality. How do you treat your neighbor? What you should and shouldn't do in the privacy of your own home. Money management, life goals, relationships, how a church ought to function. You see, your elders and your deacons and those who make decisions here don't come and just say, man, I think, feel like we should do this in the church. This would be really a good way to, to manage the church, I think. Let's set it up as this major multi-million dollar corporation and run it that way. We don't, we don't do that. And your elders don't do that. What we do is we open God's word and say, what does God, how does he tell us to lead his church? And let's do that. Devotional studies. You know, I love systematic theologies that show the themes in scripture of what does the Bible say about heaven and hell and salvation and the doctrine of man. I love those. I can read them a lot, you know, uh, just as an, a normal person would read a normal book. I love them. But they never replace the main scope. It's the same way the writer of Hebrews is telling us the scope of Scripture is about Jesus. And we ought to love that. 
when I went to Limerick, the first, um, I was talking to the elders there, and I said, what, what do you guys, you know, I, I've been preaching in Hebrews. I can continue on with Hebrews. I could do something different. And one of them said, can you start in one of the Gospels? Because our people just have never heard the life of Christ. They've heard a lot of doctrines. They've heard a lot of systematic studies, but they just haven't heard of Christ. And my heart broke. How do you preach the Bible without preaching Christ? How do you not give the sheep their shepherd and show them Christ? I don't understand. I don't understand that. I was happy to start in the Gospel of John with them and show them the life of Christ. This is who we worship. This is who we will fall down one day at His feet, casting our crowns. Why do I want to show them anything different? This is what leads us to Hebrews 1.8. The correspondence to Psalm 45, the idea of the throne that's presented to us in verse 8. And this is why not all of Psalm 45 can go strictly and only with Solomon. Because the idea of what the throne being forever and ever. Look at the language of verse 8 here in Hebrews 1. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That means it continues on without end. But to understand this fully, we're going to have to do some scriptural mining. Maybe as I brought this up about the throne, which indicates a kingdom continuing on without end, some of your minds have moved to 1 Corinthians 15. Turn over there, if you will. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse Actually, we'll start in verse 20, but 24 and 28, I want through 28, we're really going to focus, but you need to see the context here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits then at the at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Now listen to this. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be de- destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that He has ex- accepted those... Uh, He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Now, I just said this kingdom which does not come to an end, and and it looks like here it says, Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God. So what happened? Does this not indicate an end to the kingdom of Christ? Obviously, right? The passage, Hebrews 1.8, tells us that there's no end. Does Scripture contradict itself here? I had a girl one time tell me this job. We were talking, and I was trying to evangelize her, and she was a staff member that I worked with. And uh, she said, She told me, she said, well, I don't believe the Bible because my grandpa read it and said there's a bunch of contradictions in there. I said, well, can you show me one? And she said, no. And I said, then maybe you should read it for yourself, you know, and let's let's talk about it. But a person who's been studying the scriptures could come to something like this and 
at the outset say, well, this says the kingdom forever and ever, and this says the kingdom comes in, in, that he delivers it to God. So what's going on here? Whatever is taking place in 1 Corinthians 15 is not about the mediatorial office and throne of Christ. Christ as mediator. We need to see some other scriptures that show us how this would be a contradiction in what the rest of scripture says about Jesus. Turn to Isaiah chapter 97. Isaiah 97, or 97. Sorry about that, 57. What am I saying? Wait a second. If you have an Isaiah 97, I'd like a copy though. All right? Because I'm missing some chapters. Uh, actually, that's not the right one. I'm sorry. Daniel chapter 7. Let's just turn there. Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> Daniel 7, 13 through 14 here. Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him... Notice, you're following the antecedent of him. Who is that? It's Christ. Was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. What, what goes on there in this kingdom? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See what it's telling us there about the kingdom that Christ has. Goes on and on forever. Shall not be destroyed. Right? That's one place. Now turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 33. I love reading through the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the birth of Christ. And, oh man, I, I just love lead, reading through that. And this is one of those passages that just, it hits me. Luke, Luke 1 33. It's talking about Christ. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Isn't this wonderful? So maybe we, we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and say, well, this is eschatological. This is talking about eschatology. So in the, the very end. But turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. And verse 1. We're going to read through verse 5, though. Revelation 22.1. I want you to see this here. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will it be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
we read about this, even in the new earth, the throne of God and the Lamb. So we should understand this as the messianic kingdom coming to an end, but not the mediatorial kingdom coming to an end. Do you know what I mean by mediatorial kingdom? I mean it is Jesus, the, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And this is why it is so crucial for us to determine and understand what the incarnation means. Jesus' birth, God in the flesh. Do you believe that? There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. So how do we know this passage is about the mediatorial office of Christ? Besides all these scriptures we just looked at, and even Isaiah 97, I'm sure if it was in Isaiah 97, it would say the same thing. We should look at our immediate passage and see that Jesus is called what here? But of the Son. So we identify who's being talked about. It's Christ. The Son of God is Jesus Christ. But then it goes on to say, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God. So as the Son is referred to as God, we can understand this passage to be referring to Jesus being God and man. Working in his place as mediator. What does it mean that he is a mediator? Maybe we don't understand this. I, I worked at a facility for youth in Colorado for quite a number of years. It was a, like a step-down program for those who had been in kid jail and were trying to transition out back to normal life. We were kind of like the in-between for them. A lot of gang members and uh, different things. Uh, I'd tell you at some point if you ask, but <clears throat> it, was a, it was a tough place to work. But when I worked there, whenever one of the clients would have an issue with another client or a staff member, instead of this resulting in violence, which didn't happen too often, usually it started with violence and then we'd have to do it later, but we tried to have a mediation between the two parties. So the offended person would be there along with the offender and at least one other person acting as the mediator between the two parties. Somebody level-headed who's kind of a, a third party. He would listen to both sides and offer different ways in which they could make peace with one another. And so the entire goal of the mediator was to bring peace between the two parties that had no peace presently. Now, in that illustration, as I'm talking about this, and we're saying Christ is the mediator, what does he have to mediate for? You should see yourself as the party in the illustration I just gave, as the one who has offended God. And God as the one who has been offended. Now this shouldn't be hard to see yourself as the offender here. If it is hard for you to see that you've offended God, something is desperately wrong with you. You are a sinner. There's no easier way to say it. And even though outwardly you may not be as bad as some of the people who make the news in Maine just the other day in a town maybe 20 minutes away from where I live, it's the town where my nine-year-old daughter plays softball. And her practice almost got canceled because a man went into his house and shot his wife in the head. We say, man, I'm not like that guy, though. That's crazy. I'm not like him. So, yes, call that guy a sinner. Call Hitler a sinner. Call anybody you want to a sinner. But I'm not as bad as these guys who make the news. My sins are private. 
even though outwardly you may not be as bad as some of the people who make the news, the smallest sin is enough to condemn you before God for all eternity. You see, as parents, our children will come to us and tell on each other, right? That probably doesn't happen to you guys, but it happens to us. Our children will tell on each other. So-and-so just did this, and uh, so-and-so did that, and all these other things. And uh, one time we had one of our daughters came out, and she was wailing, and she said, Odie May just threw one of my toys in the toilet. And we're like, what are you doing? Why would you throw it in the toilet? You know what she did? She took her toy and put it inside another toy that they had pretended was a toilet. And they were playing with this little house. And she was crying as if she really threw her toys in the toilet. And so we look at this and we laugh and we say, okay, that's funny. Right? But then they do something else. They'll push them or they'll, they'll push them off the bed or they'll run into each other accidents. And we rank We say, okay, that's not that bad. They're not going to get in trouble for this. Okay, you did this. We've told you not to. Therefore, discipline and this type of discipline. And we think about it. That's not the way it is with God so much. He's not going to look at you and say, well, that was just a small sin. Go ahead. Come to heaven without a mediator. Why? Because God is holy. How dare we come to him so casually and expect a blessing, expect salvation, and expect his praise of us? You see, when we say, man, if you just ask God to come into your heart, he's definitely going to come in. Like he owes it to you because you prayed a prayer. Where's the repentance? You see, some of us will leave here today, and even before we leave the parking lot, we'll think awful thoughts, and we'll have awful intentions in our heart, and we won't repent The chasm between God and you is so great that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to fix it. Turn to Luke chapter 16. One of the most terrifying passages in Scripture to me. Nineteen through twenty-one here. Or 31, I'm sorry. I said, man, I can't read today. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. And Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus and like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. You see, it doesn't move. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, Get what's being said here. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures. Let them read those and understand and believe that. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. How stubborn and wicked are our hearts Does that not give you chills? As far as the chasm that separates you from God here, it's fixed in eternity. 
And you can see from the story how stubborn the human heart is. Even if somebody rises from the dead and says, man, I was in hell and I'm warning you now to repent. Nah. This is why you need a mediator between you and God. How can we break through that chasm? How can we enter into God's presence? This is where we see Christ as that third party involved in the illustration and the one who is making peace. You see, you need peace with God the Father because you are a sinner. God the Father has no sin. He is holy. He is just and righteous. And we are sinners. Probably everyone in here would say that they would like to go to heaven one day. I imagine this is what we would be saying. But you cannot without peace with God. So Jesus is that mediator. There are various scriptures that tell us the same thing, and we can see it clear. I'll just give them to you. I'll list them off. It's Colossians 1.22. Romans 5, 10 through 11, and 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20. Do you have peace with God? Can you lay your head down at night in peaceful rest, entrusting your soul to your maker? You know, it's God who wakes you up in the morning, gives you life, sustains your heart and breath. What if you go to bed tonight and it's your last night to close your eyes? When you open them again, where will you be? Maybe you think that somehow you can have peace with God in your way. Don't need Jesus. That you're a good enough guy to make him like you, but that's not so. Without the mediating work of Christ, it cannot happen. It is in Him and Him alone that you may have peace with God. So come to Christ, cast all your burdens upon the rock of our salvation, and find your rest in Him. But this is not all that verse 8 is teaching, that Jesus is mediator. This is a huge part of the teaching. And we need to take that away and say, yes and amen, we need Jesus Christ. But there's something blatant here, and, and you, you've seen it, I'm sure. I've pointed it out to you a couple times. The very Look very closely at this language. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. God the Father calls God the Son, God. If this doesn't show the triune nature of the Godhead, I'm not sure what else could convince you. God the Father, who says in Scripture, I am God and there are none like me, calls God the Son, God. A couple of things to understand here is that Jesus is God by nature. He is not a created being nor just by the office, but by nature. We should not understand this as Arius would or the Unitarians try to make it. But we understand it as the Word of God lays it out for us. If God the Father were to make this statement in jest, or as meaning merely by office, or by creation, then Jesus would not truly be God. And God would not be holy. Now it is true that the word Elohim is sometimes used for those who are not gods by nature. Gods by nature. But here the Father uses the word in an absolute way via the attributes of eternity and the most perfect righteousness being ascribed or given to the person who is the subject. God the Father and God the Son are the, of the exact same nature. When Scripture talks about Christ being the exact imprint of His nature, 
It doesn't mean something like his nature. You know, people look at your children and they'll say, wow, they look just like you. And I say, sorry, kids. <laughs> they'll say, they look just like you. They can tell. They'll look at your kids and they'll say, man, we can tell you're all siblings. There's something like us, but they're not us. They're different. They have their own minds. They think differently. And sometimes the harmony of the family is disrupted, right? Because they have their own minds. They think differently. That never happens in the Godhead. That Trinitarian harmony is perfect. And always has been. And always will be. Because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the nature of God. Is this not exciting to you? How amazing is it that we get a little glimpse into the inner working of the Trinity here, of the Godhead? That's amazing to me. Jesus is God. And this is why when we, you, when we read the book of Hebrews that he's saying, stop worshiping the angels, worship Christ. Don't forsake Christ and go back to these worthless idols and these things that you did, these rituals and all the things that you did before. Cling to him, cling to Christ. This is why all the angels must worship him and all honor and glory is due to him. Christian, rejoice. You see, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. We preach the resurrection every Sunday. Rejoice. Take comfort in knowing that you know the God of the Bible. And you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, whose mediatorial work will never end. Rejoice and be glad that God the Father and God the Son are the, the exact same nature and God the Spirit we worship a mighty God and if you're an unbeliever you need to bow the knee to Christ you know scripture tells us that one day every knee will bow and so lovingly and with all seriousness I want to exhort you to do so in obedience and repentance and faith before you are made to bow the knee. Come to Christ, who is able to save to the uttermost. Get this. Your sins, if they have been imputed to Christ, will never be imputed to you again. He stands. He has broken that chasm between God and us. He's how you get there. He has made propitiation for sin. So I urge you, come to him in repentance and faith today. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Oh, there's so much more that can be said, Lord. And better ways to say these things. But I ask, Lord, that you bless the effort this morning. That our hearts have been stirred. That our minds have been thinking right. And that we'll give all glory to God. Lord, I ask if there's somebody in here who is not a believer that they will see themselves as a sinner with a great need, but they will see you even more powerful as a great Savior who can save to the uttermost. I thank you for this church. I thank you for Wes. I thank you for Rich and Mike and all those who lead. And I thank you for the people who come here, Lord, and ask that you continue to bless them all of God's richest blessings upon them. And Lord, may we see great conversions and souls saved through this work here and Christians exhorted 
May this be done to the glory of God and in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name that we pray these things. Amen.